Welcome to In Your Brain. I'm a neuroscience student at the University of Florida, and I'm super curious about everything having to do with the brain. Join me to discover what happens in your brain. On today's episode, we cover a huge topic, probably one of the most complicated in neuroscience, which is memory. How do our brains create memories? And what even are memories? We have a very special guest that will guide us through. My name is Sarah Berg, and I am an associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience in the College of Medicine at the University of Florida. So let's start with just very basic, like what are memories for you? Like, how do you define a memory? You know, it's funny. I don't think of that as being a basic question. That's true. (laughs) What is a memory? And I think a memory is any sort of previous experience or information we have access to that we use to guide our behavior. And that can come in terms of many different flavors, right? So a lot of people will, you know, define different memory systems. So one being procedural memory. I mean, it's like if you know how to play soccer or football and you are effective at playing football, like that's a memory. There's a, there's a procedure and a skill set associated with that. When we talk about memory with the lay public, we often think about episodic memory or autobiographical memory. And those are the memories I think that most people consider to be very precious, that those are, you know, what make up who we are. And when that's affected as in cases of dementia um, and, you know, associated with a number of neurodegenerative diseases, that's really considered to be a tragic loss. Those types of memories we tend to refer to as explicit memories in that um, there's kind of a conscious interaction when you recall those memories or share those memories um, as opposed to learning to kick a football or soccer ball where you don't even really need to think about it. You've acquired this skill set and you can just do it. And we in the field tend to refer to those as implicit memories. A big reason why we know these different systems of memory exist is due to various lesion studies of patients. And one of the most prominent cases is patient HM. If you've ever taken a neuroscience course or a memory class, then you've probably heard of him. So patient HM is you know, a really interesting case and really the neuropsychological assessment that Brenda Milner did with patient HM you can even consider being the impetus of the entire neuropsychology field as it applies to memory. And patient HM is someone who had a medial temporal lobe resection for drug-resistant epilepsy. And he really, it was really sad, had seizure disorder that was completely debilitating and couldn't be controlled by medication. And so Scoville, a neurosurgeon who um, was a proponent of what's referred to as psychosurgery, which also includes the frontal lobotomies, uh, bilaterally resected his hippocampi, um, he thought his hippocampi. And when patient HM recovered from his surgery, he lost the ability to form new memories and also had lost more recent memories. And Brenda Milner, who was a graduate student at McGill, did the assessment of him. And what was really remarkable with patient HM is he really had lost the ability to form 
what I referred to previously as explicit memory. Um, he couldn't create new autobiographical memories. He couldn't recall individuals that he had met following the surgery. But what he could do was show intact procedural memory. Um, an example of this, there's a task that um, Dr. Milner tested him on where you have to trace a star, not looking at your hand, but looking at a mirror. So it reverses the feedback. So you need to move in the direction opposite of what you're seeing to be able to do this task. And it's very difficult. People can get better at it, but it, you know, it takes some practice. And he wasn't able to recall ever doing that task, yet he was able to get better at it. So it was this beautiful dissociation of which he lost his explicit memories, but his implicit memory remained intact. And that really gave way to the idea that we do have distinct memory systems. I want to add the caveat here, though, that when, oftentimes when looking at lesion patients, we want to find what's referred to as a double dissociation, right? So you see, you know, some behaviors that's impaired, other behavior that's not, and that allows us to localize function to a brain region. When we design these types of experiments, though, we are forcing a binary onto the behavior, uh, which probably doesn't exist in more naturalistic conditions. So while it is supported by this idea of memory systems, distinct memory systems, I don't think it's as clear and isolated from each other as presented in textbooks. Yeah, and it turns out that it wasn't a total hippocampal dissection mm -hmm. in the end, so... Yeah, so I'm glad you added that in there because Scoville, what he thought he was resecting, he wasn't. So the way he went in to do the surgical procedure and kind of aspirated out part of the temporal lobe, he took out all of the amygdala, all of the intermental cortex, but really only the anterior one-third of the hippocampus. And later, after HM passed away um, in 2008, they were able to do the actual histology on his brain and saw that most of his hippocampus was intact. Mm. Uh, you know, clearly he had memory disorder. It was probably from disconnecting the hippocampus from the rest of the cortex because the internal cortex had been removed. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I always get prickly when students talk about HM being a bilateral hippocampal resection because that's not accurate. Yeah, and 2008 is pretty recent to find out that, oh, wait a minute, what we thought we knew. Well, yeah, and it's funny, we actually didn't know, so the paper documenting his actual damage wasn't published until 2014, which might be beyond the scope of this podcast, but um, there's a whole HM controversy um, that is a rabbit hole. I don't know. I'll yeah, there's that. So I've become obsessed with the HM story. I don't, like, and I've read, like, there's two published books on HM, one from Sue Corkin, who was Brendan Milner's graduate student, mm -hmm. who in a sense really became the steward of HM after Brenda Milner stepped away. And then she wrote a book called Permanent Present Tense. It's a very scholarly mm -hmm. book. There was another book written by Luke Dietrich about patient HM. Luke Dietrich was the grandson of Scoville who did the mm -hmm. surgery and there was a big controversy, lots of drama between him and Sue Corkin that was documented in a New York Times article. That's There's so like cool. so much science gossip around HM. I need an episode um, just on HM. <laughs> we love a good scientific controversy. What is this hippocampus we keep mentioning? Well, like Dr. Burke said, memory is more likely than not a result of many brain areas working together. 
But this specific brain structure is the most popular candidate for having a role in how we create memories. It comes from the Greek term for seahorse, given its unique squiggly shape. Hippocampus is a structure located in the medial temporal lobe of humans that is, it's kind of folded in under the cortex. And it's a relatively large structure that's made up of several different parts. And we refer to the structure as allocortex um, because it only has three layers relative to most of the cortical mantle we refer to as neocortex because it has six distinct layers of cells. The hippocampus only has three. And it's interesting because it gets a lot of input um, from cortical areas as well as subcortical areas. So I think one of the reasons it's so critically involved in memory and why we're so interested in this structure is it's an anatomical hub between brainstem areas, um, the forebrain, as well as cortical regions. The hippocampus, because it's a brain area that shows a lot of plasticity or ability to adapt. And I will say every brain area and also the spinal cord, pretty much every area of the central nervous system and even the periphery like has some ability <laughs> to adapt. So it sounds like the hippocampus is really special in that sense, but it is very adaptable. And so the traditional view is that because the hippocampus receives distributed input from all these different brain regions and because it's so easily modifiable, it's positioned to make associations across different brain areas that can support memory. And in the traditional view, the idea was that the hippocampus would do that initially and it would be critical for memory encoding. And then over time, we would consolidate memories and there'd be some hippocampal mediated, what's referred to as systems consolidation, at which the associations that are part of a memory would be formed and eventually could become independent of the hippocampus. Um, and this is really, people had believed, why patient HM couldn't make new memories. He lost more recent old memory, like more recent memories from the past, but his childhood memories were relatively intact. It was believed. Um, that idea, there's still some people that adhere to that theory. It's called like standard consolidation theory. There's a lot of controversy around that, and I think more recent data suggests it's not as simple as that, that the hippocampus is probably always involved in what we think of being really episodic, like rich, detailed memories. I, I definitely want to mention how like we have all of these different theories in the field as to how memories are made and stored and all that, and like we can't seem to agree, which is just always fun yeah. um and but yeah this idea that like we make the memory in the hippocampus and then it gets stored away in this closet uh in the cortex and it just um i guess feeds into the engram theory and the um, cognitive map theory can you talk a little bit about that those theories of having a very like physical representation of a memory and maybe the controversies around that <laughs> yeah so Engram theory is based on the notion that there is a cellular allocation to memory. So when you form a new memory, you have a population of cells that index that memory and that memory is going to be retained. And that 
population cells that's indexing the memory can also, through a dynamic process, mediate the consolidation of that memory into the cortex, independent of the hippocampus. And there is a lot of favor to that theory. Um, then there's also, I think, a more dynamic avant-garde idea that rests on multiple trace theory, which was originally proposed by Linnae Dell and Morris Moscovich. Linnae Dell is also who proposed cognitive map theory with John O'Keefe back in the late 70s. And their idea is that anytime you retrieve a memory, you're assigning like a trace to that memory. And that the hippocampus is always involved in kind of rich, detailed we'll say episodic details of a memory. And the reason that you see that what's called like a temporally graded retrograde amnesia for more recent memories following damage, according to Nadal and Moscovich, is because older memories have more traces associated with them. And so they're more robust, whereas more recent memories have fewer traces and they're more likely to be lost if you have hippocampal damage. And then, of course, without a hippocampus, you can't assign new traces, and there's no ability to form new memories. I think that what I like about that theory is the idea that there's a very dynamic process to memory and that it's something that's always being adapted and refined. And one of the things that I think we take for granted when we're designing experiments is we like to think about our memory as being like a little documentarian and that there's a lot of accuracy to our memory. And, you know, you think about these rich episodic details from like your last birthday, for example, and you think like, oh, I've got this great autobiographical memory. I had such a nice birthday and this is what we did. And finally there wasn't a pandemic, like the pandemic wasn't as bad and we could do something. And we're filling in a lot of details there that probably aren't accurate, in my opinion. And actually, I think really more about what memory is, is our ability to remember a few details and then fill in the blanks without even realizing that we're filling in the blanks. And really what memory is, is assigning a narrative to little bits, and I'll say traces because I like that term, to like little traces we might have of an episode, and then we can weave this beautiful, elaborate narrative to it that's a cohesive story that we can reflect on and share with others. And there's some really brilliant work by Elizabeth Loftus, who's at UCI, looking at false memories and how susceptible we are to having little ideas planted that then we work into a memory and think that we've had a memory for something that was a complete fabrication and a, you know implanted essentially by an experimenter. And I think that some of the current ideas of engram theory don't fit in to like really how bad we are at memory. And so I think if we consider a more like dynamic multiple trace perspective, we can lose the idea that there has to be some sort of storage compartment in the brain. And we don't really need a storage compartment. Really, we just need a dynamic flow of energy, if you put it, because I like that term, a dynamic flow of energy that's able to adapt and assign a narrative and make sense of something. And so when an individual has neurodegeneration and they're losing neurons, it's not so much that they're losing the specific memories, but they're losing the ability to assign a narrative and weave together little cohesive details into something that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love thinking about that, how like fragile our memories are. And in terms of, I mean, it's very worrying in terms of like criminal stuff, because there's a lot of stuff with that, that yeah. 
is crazy. But um, even like with childhood memories, like sometimes you're like, yeah, I remember this perfectly. I know that this was the case. And then they're like, no, you heard that from someone and it's not right. So yeah, I think that's a really cool aspect. And, and in fact, like forgetting is part of memory and like is an essential yeah. part of it and, and is an evolutionary advantage. Yeah, there is a group of individuals that James Magat UCI have has written case studies on and there are rare individuals that have perfect autobiographical memory. So they don't forget and they remember specific details from like, you know, you could be like, where were you on April 21st, 1986? <laughs> and they... And, you know, in ways that you can fact check and they will remember all those details. And what's interesting about these individuals is that they're normal. I mean, they, their IQ isn't higher. They're not like, they just have really good autobiographical memory. Um, Going along with this idea of fragility of memories, there's also the opposite where like, if you have an event where it's super either traumatic or very meaningful emotionally, the memories tend to be stronger for those events. And I guess I wonder how that fits into the anatomy aspect. Possibly they are stronger memories because there is more areas being connected in that moment. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of theories as to why emotional traumatic memories stick. And clearly the amygdala is involved. You get more activation of the amygdala. The other modulator that seems to be critical for this is norepinephrine. And there's some work by Mara Mather that describes, you know, what you could have is almost a contrast enhancer. When you have norepinephrine present and a, a memory is being initiated, you get the strong aspects of that memory really being reinforced and then it can promote plasticity. Whereas some of the less like, you know, almost like interference can get suppressed. And so what that does is it really amplifies like the certain like triggers for that salient event, whereas other details might be left behind, which I think, and also getting back to your eyewitness testimony, why they need more neuroscience of the law. Mm-hmm. The, the traumatic event gets amplified and the little details before and after they get suppressed and, you know, aren't going to make it into the narrative. That's really what the neuroscience supports. I feel like there may be a bit of a misconception when it comes to whether or not we are born with all the brain cells we'll have in our lifetime, or if as adults, we have the ability to create new neurons, which is referred to as neurogenesis. So let's clear this up. So I'm going to give the caveat first that I do not do neurogenesis research. And so this is all ideas. Um... And other people have had some of these ideas, but I think this really started, honestly, with the postdoctoral research of Dr. John Bison, our department chair, who in the, you know, in the nineties, when hippocampal neurogenesis was really taking off and there was a lot of excitement about it because the dogma had been, you're born with all the neurons you're ever going to have your entire life. So it was revolutionary to think that we have you know, this area of our brain, the dentate gyrus, it's critical for memory. We have new neurons integrating into that network. Really exciting. And so John Bison, who was researching age-related cognitive decline in a rodent model, had the hypothesis, oh, maybe there's a decline in neurogenesis with age, and that can account for memory impairments and forgetting. And so she designed a beautiful series of experiments to look at that. And what she found 
was that the old animals with the most neurogenesis had the worst spatial memory. And at the time, it didn't make her very popular in the (laughs) neurogenesis field. Um, But I think now that more data have come out, and actually Paul Franklin and Sheena Jocelyn also have the theory that neurogenesis might be critical for forgetting. And I think you hit the nail on the head. If you have a network that's established and it's you know supporting some sort of memory that if you stick new neurons in there that need to make new synapses and new connections that can be kind of a disruptive process and but in a way that could be probably is productive and has some sort of evolutionary advantage to it and so by those neurons inserting it can kind of shift whatever local kind of microcircuit um is going to be the baseline activation. And so in that sense, it would support forgetting. One thing, though, also to point out about neurogenesis is if you look at the rate of neurogenesis, it drops off very linear throughout the lifespan. So older animals have less neurogenesis. It kind of starts as early as middle age. It starts way before you typically see cognitive impairments in animals. And then there's even some more recent data questioning the extent to which humans even show neurogenesis at all um, in both the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb. So that's a messy field. Hmm. If there's one thing you take away from this episode is that when it comes to neuroscience, lots of things are messy. There's rarely a single answer for these big questions. And in my opinion, that's part of the beauty of our brains so mysterious. Dr. Burke has years of experience researching all things memory and how we can use it as a proxy for cognitive decline with age. In my research, we're really interested in cognitive decline that occurs later in life and what the mechanisms of that cognitive decline are. And memory ends up being a really useful probe for interrogating that because, as you mentioned, memory involves all these different structures So there's really a distributed global network across the brain that supports memory. And the structures that are critical for memory tend to be the structures that also are affected robustly in older ages. So it's a good probe for kind of understanding how the brain's changing. The other thing, too, that I I also need to put in with regards to my own research that's really critical to note, that in primates, human and non-human, rodents, Without any sort of neurodegeneration, there's no neuron loss over the lifespan, which I think makes it even more of an intriguing problem because whatever cognitive change is occurring, it's because the neurons are talking to each other in a different way or a less efficient way, not so much that you just have cells that are dying. And of course, if you have cells that are dying, you have a brain that's not going to be working optimally, but that's not what's happening in normal aging. If the neurons are there, we can come up with strategies to refine how they're talking to each other, to improve how they're talking to each other. If they're dead, there really is not much to do, and we still haven't come up with a good solution on how to replace dying neurons. The other thing, though, that we know about aging, and I think that makes memory a really intriguing problem or an intriguing way to assess what's going on in older brains, um, is that every brain region ages in its own unique way, so there's no global rule. And even within the hippocampus, since we've talked quite a bit about the hippocampus, there's different subregions. So we talked about the dentate gyrus where you see neurogenesis. There's also CA3 and CA1. And even if you look at the different subregions of that structure, they're all aging differently. It's 
remarkable, actually, the extent that no single feature can apply to both like CA1 and CA3, for instance. But yet we need these integrated networks to support higher cognitive functions such as memory. So how do you solve that? What does it mean if you have cells in CA1 of the hippocampus that show less plasticity and changes in gene expression that are completely orthogonal or uncorrelated to what's happening in the frontal cortex, which has its own aging profile. And I don't think we understand enough yet how local cellular disruptions manifest on a more global, broad level, and also what that can do in terms of causing a network to compensate. And one of the things that our brain is beautifully poised to do is try to maintain some sort of homeostasis, even in the face of disruptions. So, I mean, we have this like great brain resilience that if you had dis- you know, damage to one area, other areas step up and they try and compensate. And I think one of the huge barriers or things we need to understand with aging is the changes that we document. Are those the primary insult or is that a signature of a brain trying to get back to homeostasis? And, you know, there's new tools that will allow us to kind of dissect that, but we're just kind of beginning, I think, to peel that layer of the onion. What type of studies or questions do you think are, I guess, needed for us to further our understanding what we know so far of memory and how we can, like, either confirm this or, or new studies that are needed? Neuroscience has been like, exquisite at developing new approaches. And so we've got great, like, single-cell RNA-seq data, epigenomic data, like, little things that can assign molecules or genes to memory and show, like, the necessity of a single gene or a single gene network to memory. And then we also have beautiful anatomical and optogenetic um, and hemogenetic tools to modulate circuits. And then we can go up and, you know, we now have like high resolution MRI that can be integrated with neurophysiology and, you know, good tools to assess global brain dynamics. What neuroscience has not been as effective at is bridging those levels of analysis. So how does a small change in like a gene network then reflect on a microcircuit within the hippocampus? How does that change how interneurons and principal cells are talking to each other? And then if we can bridge that, well, then how does that change how the hippocampus talks to the frontal cortex? We know that's critical, but we really, I think, need to start to think about how we bridge levels of analysis. And for someone that works in animal models... I find that even more critical because I want my animal model to be relevant to the human condition. And in a human, you're never going to be able to go in and report from single neurons broadly. You know, it can happen in certain patient populations, but it's, you know, relatively rare. Um, But what we can do is we can measure scalp EEG and we can measure, um, you know, brain activation through functional magnetic resonance imaging. And now we really need to understand how those signals relate to what's happening at the cellular level. And so we're trying in the lab and some of the projects you're involved in is developing tools that can bridge those levels of analysis. And, you know, rather than like making new, really sophisticated tools, which are very helpful and other groups are doing that, that can kind of look within a single level with a lot more refinement. That's great, but now we need to be able to translate that up a level and understand the bidirectional relationship between the microscale, the mesoscale, and the macroscale.
Memory is such a complex feature of our brains and our bodies, and honestly, we should have at least like four episodes dedicated to memory in order to really give it the importance it deserves and dive into all its intricacies. But for now, we'll leave it here and maybe we'll have a part two in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. Follow In Your Brain on Twitter and let me know what topic or guest you'd like to hear on the podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.